much and to do as accurately, rightly uh, kind of thing. And, but they, they take the old, the King James, it takes a literal uh, rightly divide, and they literally then see the reading of the Bible as a way that they approach the Scriptures to read the Bible rightly divided is the story of two people. And so to understand that parts of the Bible are about one people and parts of the Bible are about another people. And I I went to their website curious about this, again, as I'm thinking about it. And they actually, this is a quote, quote, in Paul's writings alone, from Romans to Philemon, in Paul's writings alone, do we find the doctrine, the position, and the walk, and the destiny of the church, right? In Paul's writings alone, from Romans to Philemon, do we get any doctrine that concerns us as a church? Do we get any understanding of what it means to walk with Christ and to walk before God as his people. They're only there do we understand our position and our destiny. They will say the Old Testament, and you'll notice they even exclude the Gospels and Acts. They'll say the Old Testament and even the Gospels are the story of another people, the, the, the Israelites, and that the church is a separate people and it's a separate story, and only in Romans to Philemon do we understand it. And it's helpful. They say the Old Testament is for us. It's just not to us. It's for us to help us understand this other people and their destiny and some stuff going on out there. But it's not to us. It's not, it's not ours. It, you can't read it as to you. So even this text this morning, John 15, 1, and John, the whole of John 15, the whole of John, is not written to you, they would say. It's about the other story. Israel, the other way to read it, and I, and, and I do this just to say, is I think it's important because I don't, you know, the Reformed tradition as a whole going back hundreds of years, and I think the majority position in the church going back thousands of years, is to read the Scripture as one story of one people. And, and I wanted you to be aware, if you didn't, if, you, if you're of the position that, that divides the word in that way, of, of two stories, of two peoples, I would just ask you to hear me this morning. Uh, you don't have to agree with me when it's all said and done, but hear me this morning as we dive in and, and look at what I believe is that Israel and the church have merged into one new people and that it's, that it's a story of one people. The Word of God, John 15. I'm going to read 1 to 8. It says, I am the true vine. I, Jesus, am. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And I am the vine, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and you prove to be my disciples. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we do long to rightly handle your word. We long to to know your word in truth and in power. Uh, Father, would you speak to us this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We come to you and sit at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says, I am the true vine. John 15, 1. 
Now, why does he say the true vine? Why doesn't he just say, I'm a, I'm a vine, or I'm the vine, or I am like a vine, or any of these other things? But the word true adds in there this idea of contrast, right? I'm the true vine, as opposed to a false vine or an imperfect vine or some other vine. I'm the true one. In some ways, to, you know, again, two ways to read this text is simply to say, well, what does he mean by that? And just scratch our heads and, and go, I guess, to uh, other ways that we would approach and, and decide what something means. And the other way is to look at the context and the greater context that would give us a background and an understanding for it. So the first question is, well, where do we see another vine that's not true, uh, that in some way is false or failed or imperfect? And the answer is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament portrays the nation of Israel as a vine. Israel is God's vine, planted and nurtured in the promised land. Look there under the first point in your bulletin, Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9, where it says this, You, O Lord, the psalmist cries, You, O Lord, brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root, and it filled the land. That one verse uses this, this, ish, this illustration of a vine really to summarize the entire Old Testament history, doesn't it? Because he says that you brought a vine out of Egypt. There's the deliverance under Moses, deliverance out of slavery. And you brought them and drove out the nations before them. That's the conquest of the promised land. And you planted them and they took root and it, and it, and it filled the land, this idea that when they take root in the land, they've been there for some time and they prosper, uh, you know, in the times of the judges to the kingships and you filled the land. And the bringing of them into the land and planting them there is the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. So it takes us back to Abraham and fulfills that promise all the way up to them being fruitful and multiplying in the land. And you're going to see that God takes this image and keeps it and fills out the rest of the Old Testament into the new with this image of the vine. It's such a part of the, of the Israeli psyche that when the temple was built, that on the entrance of the temple, on the lintel and the doorposts of the temple, was wrapped in a great vine with, with clusters of grapes the size of a man. It's a large gate. And, and so this vine sits over as a symbol of the people of God in Israel. It was such, it was such a part of it that when the Maccabees... I don't know if you know the, the history of Israel. And the, the Maccabees uh, rebelled against the Greeks. And there was about 100 years right before Jesus came that the Maccabees, that Israel was free under Maccabean leadership. They, they threw off the Greek yoke. And before Rome came in and, and stepped on them again, they had this little window of freedom. And in that window, as they produced coins, and they were a free and independent nation, their coins had, had grapevines on them. I mean, it's a symbol of their, their, their land, but it, became, it becomes a symbol of God's people, of Israel, of who they are. And in the Old Testament, it's clear God is the vine dresser, just as Jesus says right here, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. That's Old Testament language. Look there in Jeremiah 2.21 in your bulletin. I planted you, Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate? And become a wild vine. How have you turned degenerate? How did you become apostate, Israel? How did you fail to be the people of God that I planted you to be? How did you fail to bear the fruits of righteousness that I intend for my people? 
He looks to his vine. He cultivates it. He nurtures it. And he looks to it. And he expects good fruit. But they're unfruitful. Isaiah 5. Again, here's Jeremiah, Isaiah. There's more in Hosea. It's throughout the prophets. As as the prophets come to Israel in in the end of the Old Testament, as they bring the indictment of God on the failure of his people in the Old Testament, closes. Here in Isaiah 5, as the book of Isaiah opens up and God comes to speak to his people, and there's this extended section where he says, oh, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines and he looked for it to yield grapes. And you guys, this is, this is, this is key. Or y'all, this is, this is key. I betrayed myself. Um, y'all, this is key. This He looked for it to bear fruit. From the day God created the first man and the first woman, this is the issue with humanity. He wants us to bear the fruits of righteousness in his own image. And he looked to his people for it to bear fruit. He says, but it yielded wild grapes. And he says, now judge between me and my vineyard. What was there more that I could do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield the grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard, and I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured, and I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled, and I will make it a waste. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. Right? This is the story of Israel in a vine, in a vineyard. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for the fruits of justice, but he beheld bloodshed, and he looked for the fruits of righteousness, and he beheld an outcry. Israel failed to fulfill its role role, and to bear the fruits of God's vineyard, of God's people. Several of Jesus' parables portray Israel as a vineyard. If you look at Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12 actually virtually retells that passage right there from Isaiah 5. It retells that passage with one twist. Jesus weaves himself into it. It's a story of, a, of the owner of a vineyard who goes away and he's waiting for his vineyard to produce uh, uh, you know, the fruits of the vineyard. And it says that he, in, in the twist in the story is he sends his son to collect the fruits of the vineyard and they kill the son. And Jesus says, what is, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do? Right? So he weaves himself into the story, but it's the same story. Jesus portrays Israel as God's vineyard. From Adam to Israel, God's purpose for his people has been righteousness. Created Adam in true righteousness and holiness. And he fell from it. And there was judgment. And he creates a new people. He delivers them out of Egypt and plants them in the land as his own vine that he nurtures and cultivates. And he looks to it for the fruits of righteousness. Fruitfulness. He says, show me the fruit. But he finds none. And so at the end of that passage, Isaiah 5, it says he's looking for the fruits of justice and of righteousness. The fruits of obedience. The fruits of godliness in his people. And he fails to find them. And so God's judgment falls on Israel. And the reason for his judgment is the fruitlessness of his vine. Right? In that text, in Jesus' parable, the reason for his judgment is the fruitlessness of his vine, of his people. And then one day, this young man wanders into the midst of Israel. 
And he says to these people who understand themselves to be the vine of God, planted in it, they've got it on their coinage, they've got it plastered on the entrance into their temple of of their worship of the one true God as his people, these these people who understand themselves very richly from, from the scripture to be the vine of God. And this young man shows up and he says a remarkable thing. I am the true vine. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. That's it, isn't it? That's what God has been looking for. A people after his own heart. A people in his own image. A people who bear the fruits of righteousness and justice and holiness of obedience and faithfulness. I mean, that's it. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the true vine. And it's the one who is in me who will bear these fruits. So in verse 8, he says, By this is my Father, the vine dresser, glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, that is, prove to be the people of God in truth. And so the mission of Jesus, defined here and elsewhere by him, is to create a truly fruitful people. Right, that's the mission of Jesus, is to create a truly fruitful people, a true vine, a true Israel. And how is he going to do it? By becoming the true vine himself. It all is fulfilled in one man. And we see this in so many other areas as we look at this, at all, all the promises. And I'm going to try to show it from Scripture. All the promises are yes in Christ. That Jesus fulfills pretty much everything and every hope that Israel had. So he is going to do this by becoming the true vine. There's only one man who ever succeeded in being truly righteous. Who, who, one man who ever truly bore the fruits of righteousness that God was looking for in humanity, in his people. The true and fruitful vine is Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, Right? Jesus in the New Testament, Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam. Why? He is Adam as Adam was meant to be. He succeeds where Adam fails. He he persists in righteousness where Adam falls in sin. He is Adam as Adam was meant to be. He is the true vine, right? He He is the vine as the vine was meant to be. In that sense, he is true Israel as Israel was meant to be, bearing the fruits of righteousness that God looks for in his people. And in this, we just back it all up and say, he's the true human being. Right? And that's what he's after here. And that's what Israel was meant to be, was to be a, a, in small, a, 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 a picture, a seed of a true humanity, the way God meant them to be. True Adam, a true Israel, which is to be truly human, human beings as God meant them to be, in his image. Bearers of his image, bearing the fruits of true righteousness and holiness, which is his image of God in man. And he is the true image of God. He is Jesus fulfills everything that God intends for humanity. It's in Christ, from Adam to Israel, Jesus Christ, the man of God. God's design and creation, then, is all of this. A people after his own heart. A people truly in his image. A people bearing these fruits. And Jesus stands at the center of history. Jesus stands as that man. 
That human is humanity was meant to be. Loving God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strengths. Living the life that we failed to live. Bearing the fruit that we failed to bear. The man of God. True light. True bread. True Israel. True vine. True everything. The only way to become truly human then, according to Jesus and according to the scripture, the only way to be truly human or to be a true man or woman of God or to be a true, rightly in Adam or rightly in the vine in in Israel is to be in Christ. You get connected to the true vine, connected to Jesus, grafted in, so to speak. And so this rich and beautiful picture of being connected to the true and fruitful vine that We'll unpack in a couple of weeks. Uh, But there's this picture then of getting into Jesus. And he says, as he says in in verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one who is going to bear much fruit, who will be everything, everything that God designed you to be, everything that God has looked for in a people since the creation of the world. You are the purpose. You you know, we are the the culmination of this this thing, not us in particular, but, but Christ is the goal of history. Whether you live before Christ, it looks forward to Him. Whether you live after Christ, it looks back to Jesus. This is what Romans 11, Paul takes a slightly different image, but it's the same, the exact same point. It's there in your bulletin under the second. He says this, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, right? And it gives a context. Paul's, I'm writing to you Gentiles in Rome. If some of the branches were broken off, Okay, again, now we've got this image of it's an olive tree, or you could call it a vine. Olive trees and vines, actually, they grew in the same vineyard. They were in the same walls. They were cultivated together uh, historically. And he says, he says, we've got this tree, and if some of the branches of this tree are broken off, that is, unbelieving, unfruitful Israel, if you read the context, it's very clear. Some of the Jews who don't believe and are rejected, he says, are branches that are broken off. He says, so that you Gentiles... Although you've been a wild olive shoot and you've been on the outside, he says, you were grafted in. Grafted into what? Grafted into where? He says, among the others. What are the others? The believing Israel that weren't broken off. There were some broken off and you were grafted in. Among the others. The other Israelites. The believing Israel. And now you share in the nourishing root of the tree with them. And what is the nourishing root? It's not Jesus. Gentiles grafted in alongside in the nourishing root. Paul uses a different image. He strips away the metaphor and really, I think, says the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. But he says it without metaphor um, in, in talking about the history of these two peoples, basically, a Jewish people and everybody who's not Jewish. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, Jews and everybody else. Ephesians chapter 2 is there in your bulletin. He says, remember that you at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision. That's in contrast, as he says, by what is now called the circumcision. What is, who were the circumcision? It's not just a, a shorthand or another name or nickname for Israelites. God's people were the circumcised, and everybody else wasn't. That was the mark of the rest of the world is that they didn't bear the mark. And so you Gentiles, you were once outside by what is, you were uncircumcised by those called the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, before Christ, 
You were alienated from or outside of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to or outside the covenants of promise. And because you were outside Israel and because you were outside the covenants of promise, you were without hope and without God in the world. But he says, but now in Christ, in Christ, something radical has changed. You who were once outside and once strangers, he says, once far off, have been brought near. Right? And you would say, far off from what? Far off, alienated from the nation of Israel, outside the covenants. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace and he has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one. You used to be far off, but you've been brought near to the, to the nation, the commonwealth of Israel. You brought under the covenants of promise. You were made one man, one new man, one people of God in Christ. In Christ, God has forged a new people of faith, one people of God in Christ. And so Paul can say there in your bold in uh, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's right, those categories have broken down. Why? There's neither Jew nor Greek. Why? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's only Christ. And the goal now is not to be Jew nor Greek, but to be in Christ. Paul says the same in Romans 10. It didn't make your bolt. And he says there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. What a statement. It's like when Jesus said to the woman at the well, the day is coming when you'll neither worship here nor in Jerusalem. You won't worship in Jerusalem anymore. There's, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek anymore. We're all one in Christ who worship by spirit and in truth. Kostenberger there, the last quote under the second point, says it this way. Theologically, John's point is this. Jesus displaces Israel. You know, not the church. Jesus does. He is the true vine. Jesus displaces Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation with the implication that faith in Jesus becomes the decisive characteristic of membership among God's people. Jesus is the true vine, the nourishing root of God's people, the source of fruitfulness. From now on, he says, no Jew or Gentile, only Jesus, defined by faith. And so there, under your third point, Galatians 3, he can say this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promises of Abraham. Two things about that. Sons of Abraham. When when Jesus is arguing with the Jews, their defense in so many different things is this. We're the sons of Abraham, dude. We're the sons of Abraham. Who do you think you're talking to? We're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus says to him, you know, God could raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. You know, careful. Right? We're the sons of Abraham. Things have changed to the point where he could say, who are the sons of Abraham? He's saying, we are Israel. We are God's people. We are the heirs according to the promises. And now Paul can say, after he understands these things, Paul can say, you If you are in Christ, you are the sons of Abraham, Israelites. You are heirs of the promises of Abraham. You are the true descendants, the descendants not 
ethnically, but the descendants of faith, which has always been the issue, which has always been the mark of God's people. The mark of God's people is a faith that knows him and loves him and serves him and bears fruits of righteousness unto him. Whether you were ethnic Israel in the Old Testament and you did not have faith and bear the fruits of righteousness, like Ahab and Jezebel and some of these guys, you know, in the New Testament, Paul in Romans 9 will say, not all Israel is Israel. You know, not everyone descended from Abraham is a son of Abraham. Because what makes a son of Abraham is the faith of Abraham. This is what marks the people of God. If you are Christ, you're a son of Abraham. You are heirs. You have entered into, just like Ephesians 2 just said, you have now come close to the commonwealth of Israel. You have now come under the covenants of promise as one new man by faith in Christ. And so in Philippians 3, Paul can say there in your bulletin, he says a crazy thing to the church, to the Gentile church. He writes to the Gentile church and says, we are the circumcision. We who glory in Christ Jesus. Again, circumcision is, is, is some, just another name for Israel, another name for the sons of Abraham to whom the covenant of circumcision was given. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ. 1 Peter. Touch those very quickly. This is why Peter, and this is, runs across the New Testament writings, when he is writing to the church, he goes to great pains here as he puts people in Christ. And he takes this, and he makes this list. It's a list that most of you are familiar with. He says, um, you know, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And what you need to understand is every single one of those phrases, break them down, there's six or seven of them. Every single one of them belong to Israel. Specifically given by God to Israel in the Old Testament, where he says you are a chosen race. Israel would would be the one who would, who would claim that as their own. We are God's chosen people. We are the sons of Abraham. He says you're a holy nation and a people for his possession. Look at Deuteronomy 7 underneath there. God says to Israel in Deuteronomy as he establishes them as a nation, and he says, for you are a holy people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Right? You're a holy people. God's treasured possession. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. When he says you're not a people and now you are the people of God, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Hosea, who also comes against Israel for their fruitlessness. Hosea has a group of children, and God tells him what to name his children. It's always dangerous when God tells you what your child's name should be, unless you're Jesus, because usually it's not good. Hosea, two of, two of Hosea's children were named No Mercy and Not My People. Those were names of his children. You know, your firstborn son, No Mercy. You know, your next child, Not My People. Right? This is God's judgment and communication to Israel. His judgment upon them. But then he gives a promise at the end of Hosea, and he says the day is coming. The day is coming when... Hosea 2.23, there in your bulletin, I will sow her for myself in the land, my people. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. 
And he shall say, you are my God. In other words, I will save you. And you who are no mercy become mercy. And you who are not my people become my people. And what does Peter say? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So why do I make... Let me just touch a few things very quickly to wrap up as you think about so what. And, and it really comes down to this. And I, you know, and I understand that I, you know, churches disagree on a lot of different things along the way. And... The main thing is that you understand there's more than one way to read the scripture. And there's more than one way to believe about a lot of different things. That people, if you grow up believing a certain way, a lot of times you don't even know that people believe a different way. Very biblical, Bible-loving, Bible, God's inspired word, Bible-loving Christian people who love the Lord with all their heart and want to be faithful believe differently on certain things. And there is two ways to read the scripture. And one is to read it as the story of two separate people. God has a plan for one, he says things to one, and he writes scripture to one, and then he puts that on pause, and he has another people, and he says things to those people, and he does something with those people, and then he raptures them out, and he goes back to his other people, and he's got, it's a story of two peoples. And I am of the very strong opinion that it's a story of one people. That God has been creating a people after his own heart, from Adam to Christ, and all those who are in Christ till the end. He has been creating a people for his own possession, a people who are partakers of his mercy, who become a true humanity, a true Adam, a true Israelite, a true fruit-bearing vine as God works. So let me just run really quickly down. Union with Christ then as a branch in the vine makes us the people of God and the sons of Abraham. And this is significant because it opens the glories of the Old Testament to us. It's not the story of another people, interesting to read but irrelevant for our Christian lives. It is, in fact, your heritage, your lineage, your God working through history to Christ in order to create you. In such a way that the promises of Israel are our inheritance. The temple that promised would be that don't you know that you are God's temple. And that he dwells in you by his spirit the way the Shekinah fell on the Old Testament temple. Don't you know that you are that temple. That, what Christ, that in Christ you are everything God intended for humanity. From Adam to Israel to the end of ages. So that 2 Corinthians 1, under your last point there, all the promises of God in the Old Testament find their yes in Christ, in Him. And if you are in Christ, then they find their yes in you. The fruitfulness of God's people. We also then need to understand, I think as we, we understand what Jesus is saying here is a true vine and His goal is to understand that God's ultimate purpose for you, and we need to understand this deeply in our souls, is our fruitfulness. Lives of righteousness and holiness in the image of Christ, who is the image of God, who is the image that God impressed on the people that he has made. Fruitfulness. Is at the center of your life a passion, a desire, an understanding to be that people 
for his own possession. That we would sing and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into light. That fruitfulness to be in Christ. And that's as we come here is that we need to explore the depths of this metaphor, which we'll do in the week, a couple of weeks ahead. To see how this image of the grapevine, its branches and, and the vine and the vine dresser become this living metaphor and this living image of what it means to belong to Christ. To be his people. And to bear the very fruits for which you were created and then recreated in the image of God to bear. And that all of this, since everything that we need is in Christ. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ. This is in Christ. That is in Christ. You are in Christ. Everything's in Christ. Right? In Christ. And since everything is in Christ, everything is by faith. Right, to abide in Christ by faith. And we find everything that God intends for us in terms of our inheritance is by faith. We believe into Jesus by faith and we're grafted into the true vine and all that he is flows to us. He gives us life by faith in Christ. We find the forgiveness of our sins. It's by faith that we are, that we are clean and forgiven of our fruitlessness, our failure to bear fruit for our sin. It is by faith that we are made righteous with the righteousness of Christ, the true vine. The fruits of his righteousness are credited to us when we are in him by faith. When we stand right before God as a true and right vine. And it's by faith that we abide in him every day. And as we look at this this longer metaphor and look at it, the whole point is Christ says, abide in me. Abide in me. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you in me. Abide in Christ. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit for the glory of the Father and for the good of his people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would indeed fill our vision. That you would be all in all. That you would be the fulfillment of every promise that is yes in you. That you would be the true light, the true bread that comes down from heaven, the true vine, the true man of God for us. For us. Would you do that work within us? would so deeply write upon our souls that apart from you, we can do nothing. We are nothing. But by faith in Christ, you do all things. All these things we ask and we pray in Jesus' name.